Hi, everybody. It's Bean welcoming you to another episode of Great Moments in Weed History. Abdul and I are on our way home from Portland, where we just performed a live show at the incredible Helium Comedy Club. Big thanks to the staff there and to everyone who came out and got high on history with us. We had a blast. Also, big thanks to everyone who stuck around after the show and got high on weed with us right outside the club. Gotta love Portland, or as we like to call it, Potland. Abdullah's taken a week off this week, just like I took a week off over the summer. So I'm recording this intro, loner stoner style, at my buddy's farm up in Humboldt County on my way home. This is a place I've been coming for many years at this time of year, usually to help out with the harvest. This is a spot where I have experienced some of my personal great moments in my personal weed history. So recording this here seems like a fitting full circle moment. This is a very remote place. And this is somewhere where I've come and experienced what's known as a trim scene, which you got to think about every little beautiful individual bud you've ever seen or smoked or shared in your life. They were all once part of a big weed plant, had to get chopped down, had to get manicured. Somebody does all of that work. And when you can get a bunch of friends together in a beautiful place at this time of year to share in that harvest vibe, it's so beautiful. I have made so many friends. Big shout out to the trim crew here. Big shout out to all the trim crews across this country and around the world. Always, always a great time. If you ever get the opportunity to do that kind of work, I highly recommend it. Now, before we get to this week's episode, as always, we want to say a huge, huge thank you to our supporters on Patreon. We actually had a few Patreon supporters come out to the show in Portland. We put them on the guest list. If we come to your city, Patreon supporters, we will do the same for you. We are definitely trying to take this show on the road. Getting to meet the people who support this show, share a live episode together, and then step outside and, as we said, fumigate the city of Portland with our sweet, sweet weed smoke. It was a fantastic time. If you would like to join our Patreon, if you would like to directly support this podcast and our work in bringing weed history to you once a weed on Weedness Day, please check out greatmomentsinweedhistory.com, long URL, easy to remember. That's where you can throw us as little as a dollar. You could put five on it. You can put a little more on it and get a signed copy of my book, How to Smoke Pot Properly. Every little bit truly helps us put this show out, get out on the road, and do live shows, and most important, document these weed history stories for you. Also, big heads up to everyone in Washington State. Our great moments in weed history pre-rolls are officially on sale at dispensaries, all over the state of Washington. There's 10 different packs, each one commemorating a different great moment in weed history. You could pick the one you like the most. You could collect all 10 of them, and they make like a cool box set together. And we've had a chance to sample the product and can say this is truly 
excellent cannabis from some of the best growers in the state. We would not put it out there if we didn't stand behind not just the packaging, but the joints themselves. This is all in conjunction with an excellent local human run mom and pop style operation called St. Joints. They do a lot of cool collaborations with different artists who put their art on the packaging. And now they are collaborating with us to bring you these great moments in weed history pre-rolls. Please, if you live in Washington State, please check them out. And if we do well in Washington State, you just might see them in a dispensary near you. Now, for this week's episode, we're dipping into the archives for one of our favorite stories from the last couple of years. Not coincidentally, a story set right in Washington State. This is the history of the Seattle Hemp Fest as told to us by that Epic Events co-founder Vivian McPeak. This is a really freak-powered episode of the podcast. It's a very inspiring episode of the podcast. It shows what true grassroots cannabis people are capable of when we work together and when we represent this culture loud and proud out in public and change the world in the process. I'm holed up here at this remote weed farm surrounded by beautiful plants with a nice fatty joint in one hand and a lighter in the other, ready to settle in for this story. If you are not quite ready, however, no worries. As always, you can hit pause and use that time to get in your car or on a bus or on a plane to Washington State and buy some great moments in weed history pre-rolls and help us make a living doing this somehow. Or, of course, whatever you've got at hand, you can roll a blunt, you can split a joint. <laughs> got that backwards. You can roll a joint. You can split a blunt. You can pack a bong. You can endabulate a dab. You can eat as many edibles as you think it is wise to eat. Whatever gets you to where you want to be to settle in with us for another great moment in weed history. This is an episode we've been so excited about since we booked our guest, somebody who is an icon, not just of the cannabis movement, but of the do-it-yourself grassroots from the streets wing of the cannabis movement that actually changed the whole country and did a part in changing the whole world. And a lot of it started in a city called Seattle with an event that shined a light on this community in the best possible way. And we are honored to have as our guest one of the co-founders of the Seattle Hemp Fest and somebody we both really admire, Vivian McPeak. Thank you for being here with us on Great Moments in Weed History. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here with both of you, man. It's good to, good to see you all. Been a while. Fantastic. So just to get us started, what is your personal history with cannabis 
Where did it all begin? Well, you know, I was 10 years old in 1968, living in Los Angeles, and I was, you know, my grandfather was a senior national representative for the largest federal government labor union. So I was politicized at like 10 years old. I was going to union meetings at 10 years old. By 11 years old, I was actually rejecting the establishment and becoming a hippie. And and my first experience with, with cannabis was at a Grand Funk Railroad concert in 1970 at the Inglewood Forum. I was 12. I mean, I'm sitting in a row and these people are passing this giant spliff with this sweet-smelling Mexican commercial weed. And the guy goes to the guy next to me, and he looks at me, and he hands me this joint, you know. So I took this big hit off this joint, passed it, didn't feel anything. The next time that I, I smoked pot, I was at this party in L.A., and I took another hit off a joint, didn't feel anything. And so then my grandfather died, and we moved to Folsom, California. And there was this, this girl in my school, kind of a hippie-looking girl, and she came up and started making friends with me real quick. It's just, hey, would you like to come by my house after school and get high? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And so we go to her house and she had this this setup in the rafters of the garage. She had this whole room set up, you know, and she had a rope ladder that you, you crawled up and then she pulled the ladder up, you know, I, I presumably so her parents couldn't get up there. And she rolled these two doobies and we smoked these two joints of pot. And I'm like, wow, you know, it's, it's kind of late. I think I better, I better go home. I started walking home. And I literally forgot like where I was. Like I didn't know what city I was in or anything. I was so high. And it took me about five <laughs> minutes. And I'm like, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. My grandfather died. We moved. Oh yeah. I got high with that girl. I was so high that I lost track of everything, right? Yeah, you got detached from time. Unstuck in time. And, and let's note uh, a, a little bit of a pushback on weed wasn't good back in the day. Uh, yes. apparently yeah. it was. Yes, well, you know, California. But yeah, I stepped out of the time and space continuum for a brief uh, moment in time, and uh, I smoked a joint, and I liked it. What can I say? As you said, you were politicized at a very young age and uh, got to experience cannabis at a relatively young age. When did you start to see cannabis as part of your opposition to the establishment, and what did you do about it? That kind of started congealing early on. I was, I was very radical at a young age. And I started, you know, reading about stuff. And I read about the Yippies in New York. Part of their symbol was a pot leaf with a red star. And and I discovered Stephen Gaskin in the farm commune very early on, like at, at 15 years old. And they had some very strong political statements about cannabis. Uh, but it really started when I was about 19. And my best friends were this hippie guy and his wife that were just a little bit, they're maybe five years older than I was. And they had a beautiful young child. And they were growing growing about five pot plants in their backyard. And I became friends with them and I'd go over and we'd hang out and we'd smoke pot and stuff. And they got busted hard and it broke the family apart. He got, I think he got five years in prison for cultivating cannabis at the time. She almost lost custody of her child. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. They treated them like they had ax murdered somebody practically. And I was just blown away. I mean, that really struck a chord in me. How could these nice, wonderful, sensitive, sensitive, beautiful people, great parents, how could they be treated so harshly over something that is so innocuous? So that, that really kind of blew my mind. And so I became aware of all that. And then, you know, obviously I became aware of normal national organization for marijuana laws. You know, I attended a couple legalization rallies in California before I moved up here to Washington State. And so it was kind of a gradual thing, but it was really my friends getting busted that really opened my eyes to the injustices of the drug war. That is one of the great paradoxes of the war on drugs is 
this incredible system of oppression is also a machine to create activists because mm -hmm. the people who tend to have pushed hardest back against the system have been touched by the injustice of it. And I'm also really heartened that some of the people and historical movements that we've talked about on this podcast inspired you and that's why we keep looking to history and I, i'm assuming you felt the call of that history oh absolutely well you know i mean really in a large part the cannabis culture and the alternative culture is in part a product of prohibition when you're labeled as criminals and outcasts and kind of separated from the rest of society it creates a camaraderie a very strong and unique camaraderie uh, amongst you. Hippie was my religion, my lifestyle, my politics, my my everything. I, I wasn't a fad to me. It was it was something that I embraced 100%. And and I, and I that hasn't changed at all in my entire life. It, at 62, I'm I feel like I'm just as much of a hippie freak, alternative culture person uh, as I ever was. Well, you certainly don't look 62, and I think it's the effect of self-pickling that so many lifelong potheads do to themselves. <laughs> you know, you look fantastic. And so what was your first organized act of defiance, your entrance into activism for cannabis? Well, I don't know how much of an act of defiance it was, but the first thing that I organized was in 1980, and that was uh, a John Lennon wall. I was smoking a joint and they come on the TV. John Lennon has been shot in New York. And I jumped to my feet. You know, how, who in the world would kill John Lennon of all people? I, I got a piece of paper and I wrote off John Lennon Memorial Walk and Song Fest. You know, I kind of made this ad hoc poster and I went to the Xerox place and Xeroxed a bunch of those up and I put them around Lake Tahoe. And that Saturday, about 300 people showed up. Everybody sang, we all sang Lennon songs and past doobies and stuff. That's the first thing I've organized. I was like, wow, that was easy, you know? I saw the formula right there. You, you make a, a poster or a flyer and you plaster them everywhere and you have a date and a place and everybody figures it out. That that was the internet before the internet for our yes, <laughs> for yes. our younger listeners. And it and it worked. And 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 I think that 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 was kind of at the heart of how the Seattle Hemp Fest was born, right? Yeah. Well, I had, I moved to Seattle. I, I was, you know, a rock musician playing in in, in hair metal bands uh, in the mid '80s, and I had a band that broke up in L.A. And so I came up to Seattle to work for my dad, who was painting, had a little painting business up here. And I got this crazy idea. I was working on this song called Peace Heathens, and I got this idea for a group, an organization, an alternative culture street level volunteer organization to do good things in the name of the alt culture. Then I started this group called the Seattle Peace Heathens in the University District of Seattle. Grunge was just kind of forming, you know, it hadn't even been named yet. Every single telephone pole was was literally seven inches thick with posters from shows, from, from rock shows and live clubs in Seattle. University Avenue, which is right next to University of Washington, was just chock full of hippies and punk rockers and students and really eclectic mix of culture. I started this group called the Seattle Peace Heathens Community Action Group. And within two months, I had 75 people come into meetings, you know, and we would do these soup feasts in the park. And that was just attract all kinds of people, including homeless people and stuff. Um, we would just have these huge, you know, potluck feasts and stuff. And then we would organize. One of the first things we did in 1989 was benefit show for the Sea Shepherd boat, which was in Seattle, docked, and somebody threw a wrench in the turbine and sabotaged it. We used to do this thing called Operation Clean Sweep, and we would clean University Avenue. We would literally take buckets of soapy water and brooms and dustpans and bags that we got donated by the Department of Ecology, and we'd clean the Ave. And 
you know, sweep it up and wash the, the filthy uh, trash cans and newspaper boxes off. And, and I was blown away because people came out, you know, they gave us free dustpans and brooms from the hardware store and they were giving us free pizza out of the pizza store. And the barber shop said, hey, free bar- free haircuts. And we're like, eh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, you know. And, uh, those poor barbers of the, of the, of the yeah, especially know, of the right? 60s and 70s. A real yeah, that was rough. It was yeah. rough. They had to rely on buzz cuts, you know. But and, and then we did something, the coolest thing we did, and that was this, this Seattle Crisis Resource Directory. We compiled all of the information on all of the free services in the city for a variety of things, and we put it all into a booklet. And we ended up giving out 21,000 free copies of the Crisis Guide, had them in the back of police cars, and had uh, formal letters on letterhead that I still have from, you know, Department of Corrections, Seattle Police Department, your church council of Greater Seattle, Veterans Administration Affairs, all asking for more of our crazy crisis guides. We had a peace sign and an anarchy symbol on the psychedelic cover and everything, but it was so comprehensive with 250 listings and 28 service provider categories um, that, that they, they wanted to use it. And so anyway, I was doing all this crazy stuff, and I was a part of the Peace Concert Series in Seattle, which is still going on. It's free concerts that happen in a different park uh, throughout the the summer. I was on the board of directors of the peace concerts and we were doing a peace concert at Gasworks Park in 1990. America was just invading Kuwait at the time, the first George Bush and the first Iraq war. And the guy that, that was running the peace concerts got up on the stage. He said, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to have a peace concert when, when your, your country's going to war. Maybe we should just stay in the park. We should just stay here until America gets out of Kuwait. And as crazy of a statement as that was, a bunch of us heard that and thought, you know, Let's do that. And we're in Gasworks Park, which was an, uh, formerly a, an oil refinery. It was a gas, gasification petroleum uh, plant. It still has the twisting, hulking towers all fenced off and this huge and giant structure that has all the old pipeworks and stuff in it. And so we spent that night, about a hundred of us, in a rainbow, double-ended Bedouin-style tent from the Rainbow Gathering. And and we're like, we're going to occupy Gasworks Park. It was totally crazy. I look back on it. I'm like, what were we thinking? And so... The next day, the security showed up for the parks department and says, what is this? We go, this is a political occupation. I remember that guy laughed so hard. He was holding his belly, <laughs> laughing at us. And he says, well, I'm going to get a tow truck. I'm going to rip this tent down. And I'll be back in one hour. If this tent's still here, it's coming down. And so we're sitting here and we're looking across the field to this huge covered area that had the whole gasification stuff. And it had picnic tables inside and sinks with running water and fire pits, you know. And we're like... We should move in there, man. We could stay in there all night. <laughs> you got everything right? you need. <laughs> and so the guy shows up at the top of the hill with a tow truck and he sees this line of freaks all moving all this stuff from the tent into the covered area, right? We were there for six months and we called it Peaceworks wow. Park. Timothy Leary visited us there. You know, we had 5,000 people show up at rallies there and we did teach-ins and workshops. And so this guy had organized a startup meeting for the Washington State Chapter of Normal, National Organization for Former Marijuana Laws. And he had these really cool logos and he had these flyers around the city. And so me and about 40 other people showed up, you know, at this meeting. I'm like, oh, wow, cool. You know, some cannabis activism, you know, what a cool idea. I've always wanted to get more deeply involved in that. So we showed up, but the guy putting on the event was a no-show. And it was totally anticlimactic. And we're all sitting around going, what the hell is this? You know, and passing doobies. And there was a guy there named Gary Cook. And he says, you know, we should put on a hemp fest. We need to do something. Let's do a hemp fest. And he's like, a hemp fest? He goes, yeah. 
And so I get this call, you know, from this guy named Gary. Uh, hey, man, you know, I want to do this event. And I heard that you were a good MC, you know. And I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty cool. Like, yeah, do you need, like, you know, staff? And I, we got the Peace Heathens, man. I got, like, 25 people with, you know, CB radios and stuff that could show up in a heartbeat. So I went to meet him. And I realized that he was this guy that I used to see on the Ave all the time with a little table. And uh, Emperor Wears No Clothes when it just came out. And a jar of inert hemp seeds with a marijuana lay and a, an Uncle Sam hat. And he'd be like, sow the seed everywhere. Hemp can save the planet. And he was out there doing his Jack Harrow impersonation, right? Mm -hmm. And I was always putting up, you know, posters for concerts or my band or the PC thins or whatever. And I would always stop and talk to this guy for a couple minutes. And so we didn't realize that we actually knew each other. We just didn't know each other's names. That's how the, the Hempfest got born. And we picked Volunteer Park for our first year. I remember at the end of it, I was like, dude, it was huge. There was like 500 people, which we thought was massive turnout. And we got brought Jack up the first year. You know, Jack always spoke at Hempfest. He only missed one year before he died, which is the year that he had his his heart attack. Yeah, Jack Herrer really, I think, is seen as as the father of the modern hemp. And, and even cannabis movement. He put together a book in the late 1980s, which is kind of a, 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 a assemblage of news clippings and factoids and government studies and, and other things called The Emperor Wears No Clothes. And it really blew the lid off the industrial hemp movement. It just, just kind of blew everybody's mind. He was kind of the first person that came out and said, look, you know, you could replace tree paper with hemp, you know, petrochemicals, food, fiber, fuel, all that kind of stuff. And he was a very intense, driven figure. Uh, and, you know, we brought Jack up to the first hemp fest, and he's up there on the stage saying, hemp can save the planet. Hemp is the answer to all of our problems. And I remember at the end of the event, later on, I'm like, hey, Jack, do you think that if you kind of tone down that save the planet thing, it'd be a little bit more credible? And he's like, no fucking way, Vivian. Hemp can save the planet. And it didn't take yeah. me long to realize that that he was right on a lot of levels. Yeah, you know, it, I think it's very interesting that now we see the effects of not using hemp killing the planet, right? So if we had been using biodegradable materials derived from hemp instead of materials derived from petroleum, plastics, things like that, if we have been using hemp or plant-based fuels instead of petroleum, we would not literally be killing the planet right now. If we're using cannabis as the first line of defense for intractable pain instead of opioids, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people would still be alive. I mean, the list is so long, right? Yeah, the, the food industrial complex too. Yes. You know what All I mean? Like, yeah. th there was there was a better choice there. It was ignored. And we still, as a, as a community and as a culture, we face all kinds of stigmas, all kinds of prejudices. And depending where you live, we still face this oppressive prohibition system. But Vivian, uh, I think, will agree, you're talking about a time when these very ideas that cannabis is a medicine, that hemp can be used to replace petroleum and plastic-based societies, got you laughed at. Beyond controversial, beyond controversial, they were they were revolutionary. I mean, so many people told us in the beginning, you know, with Hempfest, you're wasting your time, man. You're pissing in the wind. It's never going to happen. We, we plastered this city with thousands of posters, and you'd have to go back and put them back up three, four times because people would rip them down. At the time, putting a poster on with a huge black pot leaf on it was just outrageous. It was totally scandalous. You know, just like really almost everything that the hippies said back in the 60s has kind of been vindicated, I think. And not that anybody will ever get credit for it. Yeah, it's crazy because in that timeline, you have the origins of the widespread adoption of ideas like these among the hippies 
and their counterparts. And then you have this really long period of just dismantling any understanding of that. You know, you go through Nixon and you go through Reagan, Reagan. Into, into Bush. And yeah, and you know, it's like truly it's crazy that we started there. There was this intense time of just complete catastrophic confusion and a purposeful burying of all of these concepts that we're talking about. And now to have all these people discovering cannabis for the first time and saying, this is a new idea. Look, cannabis can be a medicine. It's like that idea was not just around in the 60s. It's been around for hundreds and even thousands of years in many cases. And because of the campaigns against it, it feels new when the smoke clears. And, and the interesting thing is, I think what we're talking about was the actual beginning of the real culture wars that we're dealing with today. And the interesting thing is, we're at a point today where cannabis has transcended that. I think cannabis has mm. transcended politics. It's 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 no longer a political issue that right-wing people bring up. They've they yeah. thrown in the towel. It's over. I mean, they're, they're, they're subtly blocking legislation and, and passing CBD laws to stop, you know, THC cannabis and stuff like that. But they, by and large, I think, thrown in the towel on cannabis. Most of them are too busy trying to make money, <laughs> in, including, <laughs> yeah. including a lot of people who were actively who or passively part of that pushback. And so that's one of the things that um, I really love about Seattle Hempfest in your work is it flies in the face of this idea that for cannabis culture to be on par with any other culture, it has to be main. And I'm making the quote signs. It has to be mainstreams or corporatized. Um, mm -hmm. But talk, maybe you could tell us how you went from that first event, how it organically grew, and how you, in, to, to use a corporate term, how you scaled up without changing the nature of the organization or the people that were involved in it. That's a really good point because I had, you know, very long hair and even a huge beard and even long dreadlocks almost to my knees at, at a lot of the time of, of Hempfest. That was an issue and I was actually passed off, passed up in a national organization for the board of directors. And I, I, I found out later it's because I had long hair and a beard. But, you know, we, we had our first three years at Volunteer Park, right in, I think, about 3,000 people at the third one. And then we moved to Gasworks Park in 94. And, and Gary rented a plane and had a huge banner that said, Hempfest, Gasworks Park, the date, and a giant pot leaf. And that plane flew around Seattle for like three days before Hempfest, right? Which was, in 94, that was outrageous. And we had like 15, 20,000 people show up at Gasworks Park for the 94 Hempfest. And so we realized that we maxed that out in one year, and we had to move to a bigger venue. And we picked Myrtle Edwards Park right down on the Seattle waterfront, one of the gems of the Seattle Park System, right in view of the Space Needle, and uh, it's three conjoined parks that uh, that have a long, thin expanse of about 1.3 miles, and that's where we have been since 1995. First of all, we're in Seattle, Washington, and I don't think that an event like Hempfest could have happened in any other city, uh, just because Seattle is such a progressive city and has such a rich history of of kind of radical activism going all the way back to the Wobblies, you know, in like the 19. 
tens and twenties. But I think what really propelled Hempfest was that we put together such a large volunteer organization that we had people from all walks of life. And being here in Washington State, we you know we had tech people right from the very beginning. We had our own email in 1994, I believe, which was like as soon as you could have email. At one point, we we're bringing a thousand people in staff shirts, you know, thousand volunteers, and and we started attracting a hundred thousand people. When you have a hundred thousand people, you can't deny that there's a hundred thousand people down there in the park, all smoking cannabis year after year after year. Nothing ever goes wrong. We have in 30 years of the organization never had a serious accident, injury, or arrest at Seattle Hemp Fest. And where are all these people coming from? Are they just in the region? Are they in the state? Are they from everywhere? Well, we have some volunteers that come from England every year to volunteer for the event, right? You can't rent a hotel in the downtown Seattle area for the weekend of Hempfest uh, unless you get in early. I'll just tell you this. At the very first Hempfest, Volunteer Park, 1991, we show up at 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, and the PA drives up and we're unloading everything. And I remember Gary, the, uh, Gary comes up to me, says, you know, I, I'm a little concerned about the amount of homeless people in the, in the park that are sleeping in the park. Like that might be an issue for us, right? And uh, about an hour later, people started to wake up as the sun come up. We realized they weren't homeless. They had come from other regions and slept in the park because they wanted to be there for the event. And that's when we went, wow, you know, I think we're striking an accord here. I, I have a note here from one of the early uh, Hempfest to ask you, what is a bongathon and how does one participate in it? <laughs> I think it was the third hemp fest, but Gary insists it was the second. So I don't know. Maybe he's right. That can happen at a bongathon. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He asked me to MC the event. So I'm, I'm at the second hemp fest and I'm on stage and I'm doing my thing. And I noticed that everybody's looking behind me. They're looking past me and they're getting very excited. I turn around and they're bringing out these huge budding pot plants and they, you know, Gary and, 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 and Chris Tafari, and they set them on the, the amps, you know, and I remember thinking, yeah, no wonder you asked me to MC this thing. You guys are crazy. You want me to go to jail, right? And we just, and we were throwing out joints from the stage, uh, which became a problem because people rushed the stage and knocked over the PA uh, towers and stuff. We realized that we had to throw them out from the crowd <laughs> after that. And so Gary, you know, and and Chris come out and they've got these eight little plastic bongs, and they said, we need eight volunteers, eight volunteers from the audience. We're having a bongathon. And so eight people, they picked out eight people, you know, and they had eight eighths of weed, and they says, this is a competition to see who can smoke the eighth of weed first and so these people are all like oh man they're just <laughs> puffing and choking and coughing and puffing and choking first guy you know i did it i did it what did i win and it's like you won the eighth of weed that you just smoked <laughs> <laughs> everybody's a winner and here. <laughs> so whoever was the last person was the biggest winner because they still had their weed right and yes yes and and so hemp fest went into uh you know hemp history uh, or i say tokelore herban tokelore for the bongathon, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say winner of the first bongathon. If you're out there, uh, we're we're gonna do some little shorter shows on our Patreon. Uh, we w we'll count that as a great moment in weed history. Yeah. I, I think he st he still has a little bongitis or hemphysema from that. I think. <laughs> Uh, oh my God, Bean! Have you met your match in weed puns in Vivian? Oh, I'm just so getting Vivian. started. Oh man, I couldn't so hit this myself. Is a running thing. I couldn't hit myself, you guys. <laughs> I our, our listeners can't see, but I've taken the I've taken the knee. <laughs> oh my God, Vivian! I have never seen a guest on this show out pun Beanstalk on weed pun. So, and well, you just we're like raising the, we're raising the temperature here, coming. man. We're gonna raise the temperature, <laughs> and it's not temporary. 
Oh my god, it is like at another level, Bean. I am All this right. guy. All right. Rare, <laughs> rarely speeches. I just took a standing uh, eight here. <laughs> I got to get my uh, bearings back. What, what what were other you know sort of iconic moments that yeah. that you remember viscerally being there that you said yeah. wow look at this I think it's best if we'd move on. <laughs> oh, God. All right, I'm 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 empathetic to that. I am. <laughs> I am. Have um, I need somebody? <laughs> yes, yes. I need some buddy. Yes. <laughs> oh God. Some Whoa, buddy. Inception. Weed pun Inception. <laughs> Right there. Um, well, you know, Hempfist is a protestable, <laughs> and I've said for a long time that you need a pair of protesticles or a lot of hemp festrogen to throw an <laughs> event like that. <laughs> we are just oh, the two Spider-Mans God. pointing at each other with a joint in the other <laughs> hand at this point. Yeah, totally, totally. But, so, you know, back back down to reality here for a very brief second, and then and I'll abandon it again. When we had Woody Harrelson come to the stage with, like, you know, 30,000 people in front of the stage. Uh, you guys are definitely the most energized pot smokers I've ever run across. I say things like this, the Seattle Hip Fest, are the way to turn this thing around. Every one of you people who showed up here today, you're making a statement, and I'm damn proud of you, and you know what I have to say? Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, that was a mythic moment for us and I kind of went wow you know we've arrived and I uh, smoked a huge joint of Blue Magoo with him and Jack Herrer backstage one of the high points for me though was when we had the former Seattle police chief Norm Stamper come out on our stage and and call for an end of prohibition of all drugs and to have the, the former chief of your city's police department come to your pot rally on the stage and be speaking your message. I was just like, wow, this is surreal. I can't believe this is happening. And then we had, you know, two different mayors spoke for our stage, mayors of Seattle. Had a lot of notable, notable politicians actually come and speak at Hempfest. I think it's important to, to, to kind of talk about how it's great that they came to address that crowd and address that issue. But what you built by bringing 100,000 people together was the literal space for that discussion to happen. And one thing we know about politicians is they don't really get brave enough to do or say anything until they feel like there's going to be people to support that position. And so that's what I see as the great role that Hempfest played at a time when there wasn't big corporate buy-in into any cannabis. There was no legal cannabis sales even at the beginning of Hempfest anywhere in the country. And this was a unique place where the sheer number of people who care about this issue can't be denied. Yeah, we even had, um, at the time, current... Republican Cong- Tea Party Congressman Dana Rohrbacher came several times to speak at Hempfest. <laughs> I remember that. And guy. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm introducing Dana Rohrbacher, who I 
would never vote for like in a million years. Yeah, Putin's favorite a, congressman. Republican <laughs> congressman. Imagine having that nickname. And you got to realize that these people are coming to an event where everybody is smoking pot. I mean, at 420, it's literally the 420 fog rolls in and you can barely see the back of the crowd. There's so much pot being smoked. And here's Dennis Kucinich up there and, and all these other people, you know, our mayor, a mayor of Seattle's there going, the hemp fest, yeah, it's a great thing. You know, we need to legalize cannabis and everybody's just blazing against the law. You know, it wasn't legal. It's still not legal smoking a park in Seattle. And and there's a couple different ways that we achieved all of that. You know, first of all, we, of course, we started early off with the Hemposium, which is this giant 40 by 100 foot circus tent with panel discussions going on all three days constantly on a variety of subjects with like a who's who of, of notable uh, cannabis, uh, you know, lawyers, authors, activists, patients, etc. We put together the Seattle Hemp Fest Safety Patrol, which is our security and that is a hundred trained people uh, that have been through about 24 hours of training with badges and and, sh and shirts and radios and stuff trained in conflict resolution, nonviolent conflict resolution. You know, initially the police were doing buy busts at Hemp Fest and busting people selling brownies and stuff. And we created our own internal security. Over the years, we started working closely with the police department. And now the last five to eight years, the police have this compound outside of the event where they have a barbecue going on and stuff and they've got one of our radios on our safety patrol channel or security channel listening and if we need them they are there in a heartbeat right on their bicycles and stuff but they largely stay out of it and let us operate inside you know one of the things that we did early on is said look we're not going to allow any sales at our event we told the police you know in the city we're not going to allow sales. This is not felony fest, it's hemp fest. We see smoking as an act of political, nonviolent civil disobedience, but we, we can't characterize dealing uh, as that, selling. And so we started personally cracking down on people selling brownies, saying, look, you know, you're, you're hurting the event. There's all these vendors paid $1,000 to be here. You haven't paid anything and you're draining vending money you know, from these people, and it's not right. Number three, we have no idea. Were your hands clean when you made those brownies? Where did you make them? If somebody mm. gets sick, you know, where'd you get this thing? Oh, from the girl in the hippie dress. It's not, you know, we, that's not going to work. We need to be able to track down. Somebody gets sick from one of our food booths, we can go straight to it. Health department knows who to talk to. You just can't do this, you know, and so you have a choice. You could either leave or we could take you to the backstage and we have a bucket full of vinegar and you could throw the brownies in the bucket and go on your way, right? The first year, we just, we had this at the end of the thing, we had literally like 200 pounds of pot brownies. And we go to the police. And we're like, hey, we want to like remand these pot brownies to you. He goes, what? He goes, well, we have all these. We collected, we confiscated all this, this stuff. You know, we want to give it to you. And they're like, well, we don't want to take that, you know. And you know what the cop did? He took these bags. There's the King County Pump House, uh, a brick pump water works pump house with a fence around it. And the cop says, don't tell anybody I did this. And he threw him over the fence into the county's <laughs> pump house. <laughs> Amazing. So, so you guys essentially developed your own regulatory system that operated within the bounds Yeah, and let me just grab this real, real quick. I want to show you this, you guys. I have this badge made by Smith & Warren. And this is one of our safety patrol badges. Oh, tight. Seattle Hemp Fest Safety Patrol. And it's made, it's actually made at Smith & Warren who make cop badges, right? And to our surprise, oh. they agreed uh, to make this. Because we it realized... It looks very real. It, it has a very prominent uh, canvas leaf on the front of it. 
and uh, and we have our own trained uh, first aid uh, people with first aid, you know, booths at various places. Uh, we rent extra heart defibrillators at Hempfest. We saw ourselves early on as the Eagle Scouts of cannabis, of stoners. We wanted to be the most professional, the most organized, dot your I's and cross your T's pot organization of its kind. And I think that is yeah. a large part of why it, it was allowed to get so big. Uh, really, at the end of the day, there's only two ways to stop a, a free speech event. Public safety. And if something goes wrong, if they can say, well, this is dangerous, it's become too dangerous, we can't let you have this. It's a public safety risk. And if that doesn't work, like with Hempfest, it just nothing ever went wrong. We had it wired. The only other way to do it is to just price it out of existence, regulatory pricing. Well, you you can have your event. We wouldn't we wouldn't deny your free speech, but you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, right? And that's the route, of course, that was kind of taken against Hempfest, and 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 you know it's been a real struggle on that on that level. And then, of course, you know, right. COVID has COVID's been devastating, but that's 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 down the road. So so when Hempfest reached this massive capacity is that when things went wrong tell us about the the decline or sort of the obstacles that you guys started to face in later years when it became this massive event yeah well the downtown business association has never liked hempfest and the waterfront business association hates hempfest and so they were act act uh, you know they were like you know actively working back channels against us, you know, with the city for a long time. And I actually went and showed up at all kinds of community uh, meetings, you know, community council and Queen Anne neighborhood council. And I would start going to these meetings and meeting the residents of the community and saying, hey, you know, here I am. Let's hear your issues. And here's some ideas that we have to solve the trash and, you know, things like that, which were, there's only, you know, a couple of real issues that people, uh, the neighbors had. And it's funny because it's easier to hate somebody without a name and a face, you know, if they're those people, those pot smokers or whatever. But once you meet them and you come and you say, hey, here I am, you know, and you have a conversation with them and you try to be reasonable and you, you acknowledge their issues are legitimate. It's, it's a lot harder to hate on you, you know, I found. And then, of course, we're on three different parcels of property. The first parcel is owned by the Seattle Art Museum, and that's the Olympic Sculpture Park. And then we're in Myrtle Edwards Park, and that is operated by the Seattle Parks Department, and that runs into the uh, Centennial Park, and that is managed by the Seattle Port Authority. And so there are three different entities, and they all have their different issues, and they all have their different ways of gouging us economically. But, you know, most of the pushback that we have these days is from the Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board, uh, which is the entity that was put together with I-502, you know, yeah, to oversee the, the state entity to pig. oversee. Yeah, and they've got, you know, badges and guns and, and stuff like that. And they're basically the, the cannabis police. They used to be the Washington Liquor Control Board, and now they're the Washington uh, Cannabis and Alcohol Board. And and they've been, you know, giving us a little bit of grief. And the, the ironic thing is, to get a permit for Hempfest... The special events permit, it takes all year and it takes four or five meetings with this gigantic collection of city departments at, at City Hall. And it's this huge square thing of tables and you've got Department of Neighborhoods and the Mayor's Office and the Department of Parks and and uh, the Fire Department and the Fire Marshal's Office and the Port of Seattle and the Special Events Committee. And you've got all these various agencies and they all have to sign off on every nano plan that you have. And we've got hundreds of pages of plans. We have a bicycle plan, a safe public safety plan, a traffic plan, a first aid plan. Uh, we got all these various plans. At the last several years, when we're taking heat from the Liquor and Cannabis Board, it's the police department that have been standing up for us the most. 
It's been the Whoa. SPD saying, now, wait a minute, we work really closely. We've got the red. They, they're on top of that. They're not allowing sales at all. You, I can't let you get away with saying that, you know. What and kind it's been of bizarre really cool because, world are you guys we've, living in? We've <laughs> earned their respect. We've earned their respect. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unusual. It's, it's, it's almost, appearance for our show. It's almost embarrassing in this BLM time, the relationship that we have with the police because it's so positive. But that's because they have worked with us and they see our hundred people. We our, our event is cut into sectors, right? We have nine sectors and we have black shirts and gray shirts on our safety patrol team. The black shirts have been there a long time and the gray shirts are newer people. that. And so there's a black shirt and several gray shirts in every sector for the whole event. And they are on top of things, right? And their cops are listening to this radio all day and we're just, it's nonstop. They're on top of everything we have and we have, you know, central commands, you know, center and, and, and we have radio dispatch and the whole nine. It's a real operation, man. And it's and these guys are working 12 hours a day on their feet in their sectors going at it. And the police see that and they're like, wow, you know, these guys have it wired. And we've been we've had several police captains tell us you've got the best organized event in the city. You know, we would so much rather work hemp fest than a football game. Or something like that, because there's fights and there's drunks and there's all kinds of craziness and stuff, and, and you guys have it under control. Were you like, oh yeah, cool? Can you call all your fucking cop friends across the whole country and tell them <laughs> that same shit you just said? We had a sergeant get reprimanded for speaking up for us wow. in a special event meeting, and he 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 quietly said, look, uh, I can't, I don't know if I can do that again. I got in trouble for that, right? They were like, this guy's being chill. Kick him out of the police. <laughs> well, when we talk, uh, you know, about the radical politics that inspired you and that you became a part of, all these things that now are much more accepted, one of them is certainly the idea that the police are a repressive and abusive force in a, in a lot of people's lives and disproportionately to certain groups, obviously people of color in this country through the drug war and not through the drug war, but also people who love weed are very disproportionately targeted by the cannabis laws. If you had gone to the city in 1991 and said, I would like a permit to have 100,000 people in the park, <laughs> they, you know, they would have said, fuck no, obviously, and slightly with some good reason. But by proving it over and over again, by propaganda through the deed, by showing people the world that we want to live in and creating it, you created this undeniable example. And that example spread through many other similar grassroots events all over the country and, and really uh, all over the world. I think it's important to point out that Seattle is a pretty white city, and unfortunately, we're uh, most of the event is a pretty white event. I mean, Hempfest has changed a lot, and it's it's a very diverse, ethnically diverse attendance now. It wasn't always that way, and that's really changed. But I think if we were a bunch of black activists that were doing the same thing, our relationship with the police would be radically different. And I'm sad to say that. I, I think that's pretty self-evident. We would have 700 stoners show up and put on staff shirts and erect five, six stages and fencing and generators and tents 
and and operate this crazy thing for three days that was that larger than some cities in Washington State, and then tear it all down, pack it out, and clean that park. We clean that park spotless. We pick up every cigarette butt on that 1.3-mile expanse, and we clean it every night, actually, after every single day. We sort, we triage all of our refuse, and we sort from recycle, compost, and landfill. If the, the, if the, the story about stoners was true, Hempfest would have been a disaster every year. You know, imagine if it was alcohol fest and all of your staff was drinking alcohol and stuff. And what what would that be like? Right. And so the proof's in the pudding. You just can't deny 25, 30 years doing this. Nothing ever goes wrong. Maybe the story about stoners being lazy and unmotivated. We should say we're the most motivated stoners there are. Yeah, seriously. You guys really had your shit together. And I think it's interesting, especially when we're discussing all the various recurring cannabis festivals that have spawned since Hempfest or because of Hempfest. I don't think they carry quite the same standard of responsibility as you guys. I mean, of course, we have seen all kinds of different cannabis events. We've taken part in really fantastic ones. You know, I think the Emerald Cup is is a really excellent event. Tim has done an amazing job in the Emerald Cup. It's one of the greatest pot events in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that that's really what I'm learning in this conversation with you, Vivian, is that Seattle Hempfest was not just a massive festival or a massive party that was celebrating cannabis. While that's a great thing, you guys had a much greater cause, and that's creating a recurrent event that is sustainable and manageable and not destructive to really show the squares that this is possible, that this is who cannabis users are. The stereotypes that had been established in the decades before you started Seattle Hempfest are patently untrue. And that to me is the real accomplishment of Hempfest is being like, this is legit. And I hope that that's something that carries on with all the subsequent recurring cannabis events that, that we get. Yeah, well, you know, we even take it to our messaging, and, and we obviously we can't control what our speakers say on the stage. But, but we get up there and we attack policies, not people. We deliberately early on said that we're not going to trash politicians because we want them to change their mind. We want them to come to our side. You don't do that by demonizing them personally and making it personal. You attack the policies as wrong. And that gives the person room to change their, their position. But if you attack them on an ego level and say what a liar and a snake and a fiend these people are, then they're going to they're gonna put up an ego block and they're going to block your message. When you have a PA system that's going out to 100,000 people, man, that is power. Number one, it's power that the government recognizes and that could be dangerous. But number two, you have responsibility to use that, that platform in the most productive, constructive, and responsible way possible, or you shouldn't have it. I remember when I was social media first started, oh, wow, it's great, and the internet, everybody's going to have a voice. You know, now I'm like, God, a lot of people maybe shouldn't have a voice. Man. <laughs> <laughs> just a quieter, just a, you know, be, they, there was nothing like, wrong with being the asshole down at the end of the bar muttering like, to yourself. I have some friends I liked a whole lot more before I, I found out everything that they think and believe. <laughs> oh, tell me about it. But so... To sort of bring us to a close, where is Seattle Hempfest at today? Where is it going? What are the next goals? What are the next obstacles to those goals? And can we come to the next one? We didn't have an event in 2019 because of COVID. And and unfortunately, we got our permit pulled 
halfway through the production year. If it had been at the beginning of the production year, it would have been a lot easier for us. But we were already financially deeply invested in the event, and then it didn't happen. Man, it put us quite a bit in the hole. I mean, a lot in the hole. Now, HempFest 2021 is also not going to happen. It's just too complicated. It's too soon. And we just looked at the whole situation. And like most of the other big events in our area, decided that we, we really are not sure that we could safely produce the event this year. So our plan is to come back strong in 2022, but it's going to require uh, some some fundraising and stuff because we are hurting. It's been a tough year. We lost our store and offices. We had a beautiful hemp boutique and offices in Lake City called Hempfest Central for eight years. And unfortunately, we lost that because it was closed for months and months, you know, and we were social distancing and stuff. Um, so it's been tough on not just on, every, you know, in Hempfest, but on everybody, you know, we're back operating from our homes again, which is something that we haven't done in almost 10 years, um, which is really hard to operate an event that large being decentralized and stuff. So we've got a lot of challenges ahead of us. Uh, we're doing something really radical, really out of the box this year on the weekend of HempFest. We just decided this. What we're going to do is organize a citywide neighborhood by neighborhood trash cleanup, focusing, we're going to pick up all trash, but focusing on single use plastics which break down into microplastics. And in Seattle, they go in the drainage system and end up in the Puget Sound and, and cause environmental catastrophe on our biosphere. And this gives us a chance to also start a conversation about the prevalence of single-use plastics in the cannabis retail industry, because mm. pretty much everything is single-use plastic, just about. And, and we need to start thinking about how and when we're going to transition to something more sustainable. And we're going to start a conversation about the potential that biodegradable hemp plastic has as the technology continues to advance. And we're going to, you know, employ our usual time-tested volunteer model. And the goal is to get people to come out in their own neighborhood, out into the sunshine after a year and a half of lockdown, in there safely in their pods, and clean up the city because there's just a lot of, a lot of plastics on the ground. And we want to raise awareness about that and then maybe have a little event afterwards. Well, Vivian, I'm going to follow your example and I'm not going to demonize anybody and I'm going to put it all in positive terms. And I'm just going to say if you are currently making a living and especially if you are currently making a killing in the cannabis industry and particularly in Washington State and you want to put some of your money into something good and support something that comes out of the true grassroots of this culture and you want to acknowledge that you're in the place where you are because of people like Vivian and the Seattle Peace Heathens helped you get there. Please do. Please support the grassroots. Please support this community and we will come to Hemfest and see you there. Yeah, Vivian, thank you so much for joining us on Great Moments in Weed History. And thanks for all your great work for the culture. Thank you. This was a great moment in my personal weed history, so I appreciate it. Oh, ours too. Us too, baby. We'll see you in Seattle. All right, man. Hempfest.org. Peace. Yeah, peace. One more weed pun. One more weed pun for the people. <laughs> um, one more weed pun. Um, let's see here. Uh, <laughs> um, one more weed pun before we grow. It is nice to be here <laughs> in great moments in weed hempstery. <laughs> Hey, it's the mashup. Well, that's
that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.